last week. Uh, we looked at the background of the letter in the first two verses. And then tonight we'll look at verses uh, 3 through 7, Paul's thanksgiving for Timothy's faith. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But we did last week begin our study. And we talked about the fact that this is the last of Paul's letters. It's the last one, and he writes it to Timothy. Uh, he's in a Mamertine prison in Rome as he writes this letter. And it's very different from the first Roman imprisonment that we read about in the book of Acts. Timothy is probably at Ephesus at the time that he receives this letter, and Paul is urging him to come see him. Paul knows he only has a short time to live. This is really kind of a holding cell for those in the uh, prisoners of the Roman Empire that were to be executed. So Paul knows he's about to die. And Timothy is his closest associate, his true child in the faith, the one, uh, Paul's the one that led Timothy to faith in Christ, but he also is his very close co-worker. We saw in the letter to the Philippians that Paul said he had no one like Timothy that he could send. So he's urging Timothy in this last letter to be bold, to endure suffering, and to carry on the work of the gospel, particularly in light of his own imminent death. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. We covered verses 1 and 2 last week, but we want to start in verse 1 and read down through verse 7. And uh, let's do that now. 2 Timothy 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. You have your outline before you. What we're going to do is look at five characteristics of Paul's thanksgiving for Timothy's faith. The manner of his thanksgiving in verse 3, the means of his thanksgiving in the last part of verse 3 the emotions of his thanksgiving, longing, sorrow, and joy, the reason for his thanksgiving, and the hope of his thanksgiving. So let's start first with the manner of his thanksgiving, which was with a clear conscience in verse 3a. Paul says, he thanks God, quote, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Now, to understand why he says this and what he means by what he says here, it's helpful to look at some other statements in the book of Acts where he says virtually the same thing. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 23. The setting here in Acts 23 is after Paul has finished his third missionary journey. He's come back to Jerusalem. He's created quite a stir among the Jews there because they thought that he had brought a Gentile into the temple area. He's been arrested by the Romans and now he's speaking before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. And he says in Acts 23, verse 1, Brethren, as he speaks to these Jews, 
Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. That's quite a statement. I mean, he's looking over the whole of his life as he says that. And we know there's a point in there where he was actually opposing Christ, right? So we're going to have to think about that a little bit. Look now at Acts 24. He's still in prison in Caesarea. He's on the same charge as he was initially arrested for. He appears before Felix the governor, and he's also answering charges made by a lawyer named Tertullus. Look at beginning in verse 10 of Acts 24. He's making his defense before these charges. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. I love Paul's boldness here. He sounds like a lawyer himself. He's standing up and addressing this court. We know he's a very eloquent guy in the first place. But he is absolutely clear in his own innocence and unafraid to declare it. But, verse 14, this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. Now the way there, I think, is derivative of Jesus' own words. Remember, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And that became a way, if you will, of how Christianity was described. It was The way was seen as a sect, as a section of Judaism that obviously not the whole nation of Israel agreed with. But Paul's making it clear that he does follow Christ. According to the way which they call a sect, that is Christianity itself, I do serve the God of our fathers. Now this is going to help us later on in 2 Timothy understand Paul's reference to the forefathers there. Now catch this statement in the rest of verse 14. Believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament there. He's making reference to two of the major, three major divisions in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, of course, would be the Torah, the first five books of Scripture. The prophets would include both the former and latter prophets, the former being what we would call the historical books, the latter prophets being the major and minor prophets, uh, all of which spoke of Messiah. But it's interesting to me here that Paul doesn't give up his Old Testament when he embraces Christ. He doesn't give up all that's written in the Old Testament scriptures. He does not even give up his Jewishness. I think that's important to recognize because you hear a lot of teaching today that makes this hard distinction between the Old Testament as law and legalism and judgment and this really hard God and the New Testament, which is all about grace and Christ's sacrifice. Well, you've got grace in the Old Testament. You've got judgment in the New Testament. And the Bible is really one book. And, and what Paul is affirming here is that his belief in Christ is in full accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, again, he's speaking to his fellow Jews, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now that's 
a doctrine that we get a lot more information about in the New Testament, but it was there in the Old Testament, particularly in Daniel chapter 12. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. Let's talk about this concept of the conscience. It is, of course, the faculty that God gives us as human beings to help us distinguish between right and wrong. It's part of our internal, non-material part as a human being, and it's given to all of us by virtue of the fact that we are all made in the image of God. So both believers and unbelievers have a conscience. Let's consider first what the scripture has to say about the conscience of the unbeliever. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having a law, are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So certainly an unbeliever has a moral sense of right and wrong by virtue of the fact that God has put that within his heart. Now we have to say, too, that the conscience is shaped and molded both by what it takes in, by what it's exposed to by way of literature or media, even your friends and the counsel of your friends. It's also molded and shaped by whether or not it is obeyed. Your conscience can become hardened over time when its warnings are not heeded. An unbeliever's conscience can even be become very hardened and seared. And Paul talks about this in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4. He says in verses 1 and 2, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. What he's saying here is that People become influenced by false teaching, their behavior follows, and they end up violating their conscience so often that it no longer functions properly. And perhaps the ultimate example of this is in Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 21 says, and of course this passage is describing man's downward spiral deepening and deepening into sin. Verse 21 says, For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Notice the problem there is not ignorance. It's not that they don't know God. It's that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Now that's a phrase that's used three times in this section of Romans 1. And the idea there is as mankind gets worse and worse in his sin, God's going to, as part of his judgment, says, okay, if that's the route you want to go, I'm going to give you fully over to it, and you're going to suffer the consequences. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And look again down at verse 32. I'm not reading through the whole passage just to save some time, but you get the general drift here. Verse 32, and although they, that is pagans, uh, people that don't obey God and don't know Christ, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's a vivid description of somebody whose conscience 
has been violated to the point where they're no longer able to tell what right and wrong is. And we're seeing that, quite frankly, in our own day in a way that we never have in our own country. Okay, that's just a few places in the scripture that describe the conscience of the unbeliever. Let's look now at a believer's conscience. Now, not always, but ideally, a believer's conscience is going to be very sensitive to sin. As he continually exposes himself to the word of God, and his mind is transformed by that, his thinking is changed, as he walks in the spirit and heeds the promptings of the spirit of conviction of his own sin and repentance, a believer wants to please God. And when he does that, his conscience affirms him in that. When he violates that, when he disobeys, his conscience lets him know by producing guilt. It's kind of like pain, you know. If you didn't have pain in your body, then something could go wrong. You wouldn't know about it. Well, the conscience is there and functions to let us know when we're doing right and wrong. And a believer is going to grow, even over time, grow in his sensitivity to his own sin. The Apostle Peter speaks about a desire that a believer has to maintain a good conscience as part of the transaction that takes place at believer's baptism. He says in 1 Peter 3.21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And he's quick to add, not the right, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, a good conscience is something that has to be maintained, right? As you do something that's wrong, you make restitution, and that restores your conscience. Uh, that's the point here. Well, that helps us as we come back to Second Timothy. What Paul is saying is he's done that. Really, from his youth up, he's done that. His desire has always been to do what was right before God and before men. He says that he's done this in the same way that his forefathers has. So he's part of a line of godly Old Testament saints. He talks about his heritage here, and that kind of sets up the fact that Timothy has this same godly line of ancestors for himself and his grandmother and his mother. Paul stands in the line of Old Testament saints who were part of the covenant nation of Israel. They loved the law of God. They worshiped the true God. In contrast to all the false gods of the other nations, according to the revelation that God had given them. Now, you have to ask, I do, what about the fact that Paul persecuted Christ and his followers, at least early on in the book of Acts? We have to say, yes, he did do that. He evidently did not accept Jesus as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, and he was willing to put to death those who did. That's pretty serious. What is Paul's own explanation for this? It's interesting to look at that again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. At a certain point, at the point at which Christ made himself known to Paul, he became an ardent follower of Christ. He was completely turned and radically converted. I've always wondered, it's always interesting to me to think about how much Paul knew about Jesus during his earthly ministry. I mean, obviously, as a devout Jew, he would have gone up to the feast at Jerusalem at least three times a year. 
And you would have think at least that he would have heard Jesus teach at some of those festivals over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry. We just don't have a lot of information about that in Scripture. But we do. It is clear that, that Paul initially did not embrace Jesus as the Christ. He subsequently did. Once he came to know Jesus Christ for who he really was, he embraced him as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he knew that the coming of Christ was in full accord with the law and the prophets, just as he said. I want to read you a quote from Hebert. It's one of my favorite commentators in general and I think really good on 2 Timothy. But I think he sums up what we've been talking about very well here. Paul came from a line of ancestors who, as members of the covenant nation, were sincere, godly people and worshipped the true God according to the life that they had. His forefathers had passed on to him the true knowledge, the knowledge of the true God. And this God he now continues to serve in a pure conscience. It was the atmosphere in which his service was rendered. Now, catch this next sentence. He may be accused of teaching a new, strange, and illegal God in the empire because it is different from the Old Testament message. An illegal God in the empire who could not be worshipped with a pure conscience because forbidden by law. But the God whom he is serving is the same God his forefathers have served and is now officially recognized as the God of the Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire. Paul has not changed his worship. But it's Rome that has changed. We talked about that last week. We talked about the difference that had occurred during the time of the Roman Empire after Paul's first house arrest. It was much more dangerous to be a Christian subsequent to that time. Remember when he's under a house arrest in Acts 28? He has freedom. He's able to evangelize the whole Praetorian Guard. And he has the ability to proclaim the gospel to all those who come to him. Well, now they're holding him and and about to execute him. And there's been a drastic change, largely because of Nero and, and his attitude toward Christians. Hebert goes on to say, Paul was deeply convinced that Christianity was the true continuation and development, yea, the culmination of the Old Testament revelation. That's exactly right. In holding to his faith as a Christian, he had not not denied his former faith or the faith of his ancestors. Although a prisoner on behalf of the gospel, his conscience is clear as he approaches God in his dungeon. Now think about this. Why would it be very important for Timothy to to know that? Because Timothy, it seems, as we read between the lines in in both of these letters, is that there were times where he was timid. There were times where he was afraid and intimidated. And Paul's just assuring him, look, this is in full accord, not only with the Old Testament scriptures and not only with what I have believed, but also with what you've been raised. Remember, your mother and grandmother have taught you the Old Testament scriptures, and this is just the flowering out of that earlier revelation. It's important for Timothy to know that so that he, too, would not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus or of Paul as his prisoner. He says that in verse 8. Okay, that's the manner of Paul's thanksgiving. Let's look now in the last part of verse 3 at the means of his thanksgiving. And this is obvious. It's through prayer. It's prayer that he offers constantly, both night and day. It's not saying that that's all he did was pray. He ate, obviously, at times, and he slept 
But his thanksgiving for Timothy was so strong and so constant that he thanked him at both a night kind of time and a day kind of time. And we see this as a pattern in Paul's letters over and over and over again. I'm going to give you a few examples just so you see the pattern. It's very frequently the way that Paul starts his letters. After seven verses of introduction in the letter to the Romans, for example, he says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And then finally in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we give thanks to God, we here as Silas and Timothy and Paul, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. That's just a sampling, but it's enough to see the pattern. Paul is thankful for different things as he writes to these different churches and different individuals, but he's always thankful to God first for the work that God has done in the lives of those to whom he writes. He recognizes that God is the one who saves, God is the one who gifts, and God is the one who grows the faith in all those who are his. And his gratitude to God for his work in the lives of those to whom he ministers, in turn, gives him a great love for those people and a close fellowship with them. He had a lot of time on his hands. We don't know how long he was in this holding cell, but he had a a lot of time to pray, and he did. And he prayed often for Timothy. Well, that brings us to the third aspect of his thanksgiving, and that was his emotions. He mentions in verse 4 his longing, sorrow, and joy. He says, Longing to see you, Timothy, even as I recall your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now, obviously, Paul's longing is very understandable here. This is his closest fellow worker in the gospel. This is a young man that came to faith in Christ through his ministry. He's about to die, and he knows it. And the mantle is literally going to be passed to Timothy. Remember we talked about last week, it's not only a dark hour for Paul, it's a dark hour for Christianity. The Romans are turning the screws down. And Timothy is going to be vital for carrying on the faith after Paul is gone. He wants Timothy to come see him as soon as possible before he's executed to enjoy face-to-face fellowship with him and to encourage him. He speaks of recalling Timothy's tears. Now, we don't know explicitly what that is, but it seems very likely that this was the last time that they were together. It was when Paul was arrested and parted from Timothy and taken to this prison. Again, because of the change in the Roman Empire's attitude towards Christianity, Paul is seen as a criminal, very different from his first arrest. So at this point, Timothy's spiritual father was being torn from him, and obviously he's very upset about this. Paul wants to turn those tears to joy, not only for himself, but for Timothy as well. 
What about the reason for his thanksgiving in verse 5? It's Timothy's faith. I'm mindful of the sincere faith which is within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm sure that it's in you as well. He calls Timothy's faith here a sincere faith. That is, it's genuine. It's unhypocritical. It arises from a, a genuine conviction in his heart. Like Paul had described earlier, Timothy also comes from a line of godly ancestors. Both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were believers. Now they too were Jews, and they certainly believed in the Old Testament scriptures. They said, or it says in 2 Timothy 3, it talks about the fact that you, however, have continued in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings those sacred writings are the Old Testament scriptures that his mother and grandmother, no doubt, raised Timothy in. But I think his mother and grandmother were more than just Old Testament godly saints. I think they, too, had come to embrace Christ. They had heard Paul's message during his first missionary journey as he came through the town of Lystra. They embraced Jesus Christ as the, the Messiah who was crucified and raised from the dead. And they were saved, I believe on that first missionary journey. Now, we don't have explicit record of that scripture, but I believe that's when it happened. Paul knew these women by name, and he knew of their sincere faith as well. So he's convinced that Timothy has that kind of faith. I think Timothy is, uh, there's times where he really really struggles, but it's not, uh, Paul's convinced that he's of a sincere faith, and he's just trying to exhort him and encourage him to carry on and, and press through those difficulties. What is the hope of his thanksgiving in verses 6 and 7? Continued faithfulness in ministry. Let's look at 6 and 7 again. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Paul's moving now from thanksgiving to God for Timothy's faith to his main purpose in writing this letter and that's to strengthen Timothy to strengthen his resolve in carrying on the work of the gospel particularly in light of his own death and when he says for this reason it's for the reason of Timothy's sincere and well established faith that he's already mentioned back in chapter in verse 5 and again we get the impression that Timothy is not quite as rock solid as Paul is there's times as a younger man when he could be intimidated and think about the daunting task he faced is he went to these different local assemblies in the first century church and he stood in for the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's one thing when you come as the Apostle Paul that has all this revelation and you're in your 60s and you're speaking to the congregation with full authority. It's another thing when you come as a younger man, Timothy, who's representing Paul and having to straighten things out in these churches and help establish order and identify who elders should be. And some of this was difficult for Timothy as he faced it. But Paul still had great confidence in him. He's expressed that confidence already in the previous verses, really as a means of, it's genuine thankfulness to God, but it's also a means of motivating Timothy. And now he's moving to exhort and give a series of command, really in verses 6 through 14. We're only going to look at 6 and 7 tonight. But this begins a section where he's really uh, commanding Timothy with the authority of an apostle, to stay faithful to his calling, faithful to his ministry. He tells Timothy to rekindle 
the gift of God that had come through the laying on of his hands. Now, we don't think of Timothy as an apostle, certainly not one of the twelve or the thirteen, if you include Paul. Uh, But he was Paul's right-hand man. His spiritual gifts must have been pretty obvious to Paul, right? Because when he comes through on his second missionary journey through Lystra, uh, not only does Paul want him to come with him, but he has a good reputation amongst all the people there. And I think as you look at the role that Timothy plays, both in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, his gifts at a minimum must have included teaching, uh, administration, he's, he's helping organize these churches, and or, exhortation. And when Paul says to rekindle his gift, uh, certainly the gift had not completely gone out. There were still embers there, and the gift was still there. But he's just stirring him up to say, look, God's given you this gift. He's saved you. He's called you into a lifetime of service to him. He's given you a particular role within the body of Christ at this point in the history of the church and he's saying don't waste that use those gifts press on in the ministry don't slack off and don't forget what God has done for you particularly as you face increasing opposition because it's coming now he says too in Timothy's case that this gift was imparted to him through the laying on of Paul's hands and there's reference back to 1st Timothy here as well 1st Timothy 4 verse 14 Paul says this Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. The presbytery here being a group of elders. He says in 2 Timothy that was the laying on of his hands. He was evidently part of a group. We're not told exactly when it took place, but it seems likely that it was in connection with the events of Acts 16 when Timothy was asked to join Paul and Silas to continue on that missionary journey, that second journey. So Paul is pointing Timothy back to that event and saying to him, look, the grace of God that was given to you at that ordination is what we would call it today. That is sufficient for the situation that you're dealing with now. And when he says the spirit that God has given us in verse 7, you'll notice, I think, in most of your translations, that spirit with a little s, right? Does anybody have a translation that says has big S? I looked at several, and the only one that I saw uh, was a net Bible, and they would take it as the Holy Spirit here. Certainly, God gives all of us as believers the Holy Spirit, but that's not the point that Paul's making here. He's saying the spirit that is your human spirit as influenced and grown by the Holy Spirit is not one of timidity. So he's not speaking directly here of the Holy Spirit, but the impact that, that the Spirit has human spirit, little s, is influenced by the Holy Spirit, big S. Also, in this context, Paul is very likely speaking, when he says us, he's not giving us a spirit of timidity. He's talking about himself and Timothy. Now, obviously, there's a wider application for all of us here, but this is a very personal letter to Timothy, and he's very pointed in what he's trying to do to him individually. Now, Paul goes on to describe the character of this spirit first negatively and then positively it's not a spirit of timidity or cowardice and therefore it does not cower or shrink away at either suffering or opposition instead he uses three things three terms to describe what it is a spirit of first it's a spirit of power 
Now, I don't think he's talking about miracle-working power here. He's talking about authority. He's talking about the fact that Timothy has the truth. He stands on the moral high ground no matter what situation he's facing in his opposition. And he needs to endure suffering and mistreatment without giving up. It's also a spirit of love. Love in the sense of self-sacrificing service to both Christian brothers and sisters and even towards enemies and those that are opposing his mission, even towards his persecutors. And then finally, it's a spirit of discipline or self-control. This is restraint and self-control that's required of all Christian leaders. This is one of the characteristics that appears in both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as a qualification for elders. Let me read from Hebert again. I think he has another good quote here that sums up these three graces and the way they characterize the spirit of the man of God. These three graces are especially needed by one in Timothy's circumstances. Threatening clouds are rapidly darkening the sky. Added to the prevailing local hostility to the planning and development of the church, he's speaking there of the Jewish hostility that has been there since Christianity was born, there's now imperial hostility. That is, there's increasing opposition from the Roman Empire. In the face of these ominous developments, there's a need for power. That is aggressive energy in the face of difficulty, which overcomes the weakness of cowardice and enables one to work, to endure, to suffer, to die, if need be. Needed also is the spirit of love, that self-forgetting love to Christ, the church, and the souls of men, which exhorts, warns, rebukes with boldness and fidelity at whatever risk of consequences to self. And then the third quality mentioned is discipline, the exercise of a sane, balanced mind. That's particularly difficult uh, when you're facing opposition for what you're proclaiming and what you're living. Well, let's look at some implications and, and personal application in light of this passage that we've looked at together tonight. What have we learned? And, and what difference does it make to us? First, like Paul, we all have people in our life for whom we can give thanks to God because of the work that God has done in them of his bringing them to salvation and growing them into uh, truth, into Christian maturity. And I think it's particularly helpful to be mindful of that when we need to exhort somebody, when we need to rebuke or correct somebody or to strengthen them, is to first to give thanks to the work that God has already done in their lives and to even remind them of the way that their lives demonstrate that. Secondly, like both Paul and Timothy, we can pass along the faith with our own families to both our children and to our grandchildren, exposing them to the truth of the sacred scriptures from their childhoods as well. And I would argue to all the scriptures. I'm ashamed to say it, but as I, I came to Christ as a fairly young man, a very young man, 11 years old, and uh, most of my early Christian teaching and instruction in my own reading of the Bible was in the New Testament. I'd read Proverbs, I'd read Psalms. You know, you even had those little testaments. They had Psalms and Proverbs and New Testament. My understanding of the Old Testament was woefully lacking. And I, find that, I found that out very quickly when I went to seminary. 
But when I got to seminary and we had courses, uh, Old Testament survey course in particular, it was amazing to me how you can start in the Torah, in the first five books, and see how the rest of the Bible really is an unfolding of what's, what's there in those first five books. How later revelation builds on that earlier revelation, and how you really need to read from Genesis Revelation to understand the whole plan of God. That's how you end up, by the way, dispensational and premillennial. If you start and read in Genesis and read through the Bible in the order in which it's given, you can only end up that way. You'll see very clearly the distinction between the church and Israel, and you'll see the need for a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth to fulfill all those prophecies that he didn't fulfill at his first coming. If you start in the New Testament and then you try to read the Old Testament and lie the New, you can get all mixed up. Don't do that. Now, there's a place, as you come as a new believer, certainly there's a place to read the New Testament epistles first. Those are the ones that are most directly aimed at us as the church. But don't neglect reading the whole counsel of God, just as Timothy's mother and grandmother didn't neglect to teach him. Thirdly, weariness in ministry is certainly not uncommon. Paul's reminder to Timothy to rekindle his gift is a reminder to all of us. Every one of us, as believers in Christ, have been given a spiritual gift, and that carries with it a responsibility to exercise that gift within the body of Christ. We're not given those gifts for our own individual growth, although we'll certainly grow as we use them. We're given those gifts to serve others and to edify them. 1 Peter 4.10 says, It's each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Galatians 6.9 and a number of other scriptures speak about the fact that it's hard to do that. It's hard to do it over a long and sustained period of time. And Galatians 6.9 reminds us, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Finally, you know, most of us will never face the kind, most of us, I'm not saying it will never happen, but most of us will never face the kind of opposition that Paul and Timothy did in the first century. But it is inevitable that as followers of Christ, we will face opposition. We face it from Satan. We face it from the world system which he leads. We face it from our own flesh. We can't give up. And one of the ways that we can be strengthened in our own usefulness and in the midst of opposition is to remember Paul's words to Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and love and discipline. The writer of Hebrews points to Christ as the ultimate example of this, and he says this in Hebrews 12.3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this letter that Paul wrote as he faced execution as he realized and looked back over his, his life, the fact that he had served God all of his life, the fact that he had kept the faith and finished the course and fought the good fight. Lord, it's an inspiration to us that we 
we're not the Apostle Paul and we have roles that are different from his and gifts that are different, our goal is still the same. We still want to serve you. We want to keep a clear conscience before you and before men. We want to use the gifts that you've given us in a way that edifies the body of Christ. We want to be faithful, if it's called upon, even to the point of death, that we might inherit life. We recognize that Christ has already paid that ultimate price for us and that we've been bought with a price. We belong to you. Lord, help us to stir us up the same way that Paul stirred up Timothy through your word uh, to be faithful in our service to you and to, to delight in that. Thank you for the time we've had together tonight, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.